Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, Tim. Welcome to Strange Familiars. That sounded almost sincere. (laughs) (laughs) I may or may not have already been on Coast to Coast AM this week. So is this a time traveling episode? (laughs) But at the time we're recording this, I have just taken a call from the producers from Coast to Coast AM. So they're going to have me on to talk about Don't Look Behind You, my most recent book available on amazon now do they call them like some sort of bat phone is there a signal in the sky that has like an alien a sasquatch a flannel man and a ghost on it and you just know who it is when they want me they put the flannel man signal up and i call in it's like the bat signal but flatter (laughs) just did a really weird flannel man interview that you know it gets to the point where i just can't listen while you're interviewing certain people I just, like, I have to tune it out. I'm I'm usually in the room next door, and sometimes I listen, but sometimes it's like, nope, I think I'm going to put my headphones on now, so I have a chance at sleeping. I'm just too creepy. <laughs> yeah. It's just... This one specifically was, was very... Uh... 
upsetting. Yeah. Precognitive stuff. Hey, but let's start talking about a happier topic. Graveyards. Graveyards. (laughs) I think this, my foot right now is almost uh, hitting an odd fellow's coffin that needs some repair work. And it's just been sitting in the middle of the studio for like six months. Because when you see a coffin on the side of the road, you say, if not us, who? (laughs) If not us, then who? (laughs) That is the ritual coffin in question that I dreamed about in my August of Falmouth dream. Of course, it was not in disrepair in my dream. Oh, like somebody had bothered to do something with it. That was a dream. I think it was so far (laughs) back in time that it was in new condition at that point. Oh, well, there you go. Yes. I talk about all of that cool August of Falmouth stuff. On the most recent patron episode, two episodes we did for patrons. That's double the pleasure. On the secret cipher of the euphonauts. So patrons You've got, landed on euphonauts? I'm going with euphonauts, I think, yes. Okay. I, I not know I was, UFO-nauts. I was struggling there for a while. Not euphonauts. Not ufonauts. ufonauts. I, th- I think I'm going euphonauts. Euphonauts. That's where I'm, I've, I've landed. Patrons got three episodes in February. So pays to be a patron if you like strange familiars. We like patrons. Um, we absolutely do. <laughs> but yes, graveyards. I'd say a good bit of our initial courting, if you can call it that, mm-hmm. was done in graveyards. Well, you know, having latent goth tendencies, aren't we always kind of in a graveyard? <laughs> <laughs> latent goth tendencies, and in your case, a hardcore genealogy family. Yeah, we used to spend Sundays, uh, not at the church proper, but in the cemeteries. In the cemeteries. (laughs) Because before the internet, like you've said before, that's how you got information. Yeah, you could go to the Mormon library or you could go to cemeteries. And it is a lot of uh, irrefutable primary source material. So if you're looking to start a family tree and you know someone in your family tree, Mm -hmm. you know where they're buried... A lot of times they bury relatives together. So <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah, it's 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 a helpful next link if you're if you're stuck too, or if you think that the information just doesn't feel right, mm-hmm. you know, online when you're like, eh, it doesn't make sense. I think somebody copied that down wrong. You know, there's a lot of material to be found at cemeteries, and most of the time the cemeteries themselves or the churches are very amenable to, to helping people. Yes, some are not. Some are not. <laughs> <laughs> It depends what you look like, I found also. Yeah. So, Lauren, you know Lauren? Yes. We can interview Lauren this episode, who is... The cemetery expert beyond cemetery experts. Yeah, I think the, she knows cemetery. I feel a little silly even talking about cemeteries, knowing that her interview is coming up. <laughs> like, like, what do I know about Victorian iconography? <laughs> you may or may not be working at a cemetery. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, at bare minimum, volunteering, but also perhaps uh, working there as well. So we got a really awesome tour of a local cemetery. And, um, you know, they never fail just elicit sort of like a, a humility and a calm that the only, I can only really liken it to a library. And I feel like that's what they are, too. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Gardens, libraries, genealogical websites, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will direct people back to, all the way back to episode two, if they want to hear us talk about Prospect Hill Cemetery in York and tell the story of the singing corpse that goes along with it. And we even got some weird photos that day with some, some kind of uh, anomalies and stuff at the the opera singer. Is she an opera singer or an actress? 
the she was an actress at the opera actress at the opera House. okay so mm-hmm. there's my the, where the confusion comes <laughs> in so if, if you want to hear a cemetery episode cemetery specific episode check out episode two all the way back then and then didn't we have an episode where we went to ziggler's church to talk we, about we a... did uh because of the the sort of so-called headless horseman sort of uh, ghost mm-hmm. that's associated with that as well Let's go to our interview with Lauren, who we've known for a long, long time, a good old friend of ours, and I'm happy to have her on and talk about cemeteries, which she knows so well. Tonight we're talking with Lauren Rhodes. She is an author of both fiction and nonfiction and an old friend of mine. We, we met many, many years ago. Was it at the first Terrastock Festival? Is that when we? I think it there? must have been, yeah. And we'd been in contact before then, though, right? I was was I doing art for Morbid Curiosity already? I think I knew you when Mason was doing the cassette exchanges. Okay, I think it goes back that far. Oh, okay, all right. So, yeah, so that's I used to run before I I ran a record label. Before I did a podcast, I did a little cassette tape label, and. Lauren's husband and I had traded tapes and uh, music and so forth way back, I think probably starting maybe as early as the very late 80s. Uh, Certainly by the early 90s, we were in contact. Yeah, it was probably while we were still in Michigan. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That was a long time ago. Yeah, we've put some, some tracks behind us. And Lauren used to edit a publication called Mor- morbid curiosity uh, how many issues had you done they were 10 10 over 10 years okay which was one of my favorite publications of all time and and uh, i know allison really loved it too i think that still remains one of her favorite publications the general thrust of that was true stories right it was true experiences but of the sort of unusual and morbid and i mean how would you describe morbid curiosity It was uh, kind of a true confessions magazine. I asked people to just tell me true stories from their lives about the most morbid, most upsetting, most unusual thing they'd ever done. And uh, people did not disappoint. (laughs) It was really fun to put it together. That was one of the first places I ever wrote anything for. That was I wrote the story about Hex Hollow, which ended up being hacked to bits and put in the the weird USA and weird Pennsylvania books and which led to really my first book. So thank you for, for kicking me off in the writing world with that. Oh, that was a great story. Oh, thanks. And I I think I did. Yeah. I did another story about the witch tree, which that ended up becoming uh, the witch tree profits album I did with stone breath. I kind of rewrote that story for that album and Allison had written a story as well about some medical issues and infertility for Morbid Curiosity. So we kind of really started on our way with uh, Morbid Curiosity with all this stuff. I love putting that magazine together. I miss it every now and then, but <laughs> it was a lot of work. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Anything like that. Uh, well, you're an author, you know. It's just you, you just have to pour everything into doing that. And there's the rush when you when you publish, you know, either either a magazine or a book is there's nothing quite like it. 
that feeling. And then I don't know if it ha- it's the same for you, but as soon as I publish something, I immediately go through a, a sort of period of depression. It's not distressful, really, because I know what it comes from. I know it's, oh, it's the end of the big climb in the big mountain and, and so forth. But it's, I recognize it. It's there. It's this little yeah. down period where it's, what's next? Some of these stories from Morbid Curiosity were collected into a book called Morbid Curiosity Cures the Blues. Is that still in print? Yes. Yeah, it's still available, uh, paperback and ebook. Awesome. Oh, it's almost 10 years old now. So <laughs> I had done, but besides the stories, I'd done several pieces of artwork for Morbid Curiosity, and some of my illustrations are in that book as well. So uh, people can check that out. And then you went on to write, did you start writing on the cemeteries right after that, or did you write some fiction first and then? Uh, well, a little of both. Um, the very first cemetery book was Death's Garden, Relationships with Cemeteries, and it predated Morbid Curiosity. It was the kind of the impetus to doing the magazine. That's right. I had forgotten. Yeah. And I had done a piece of artwork for that as well. Yeah, you did yeah. the frontispieces yeah. on that. Yeah, that was um, a wonderful book. Well, I wanted to, originally, I wanted to showcase a friend's photographs. He gave me a shoebox full of pictures of cemeteries that he'd taken on his travels. And uh, when he gave me this, the pictures, he was dying of AIDS. So I, there was kind of a hurry up to get this published before he passed, and, and I didn't make the deadline. But it was the sort of thing that everyone I spoke to had a story about a cemetery that they were connected with somehow, that they were either, they'd grown up there, or they'd visited on vacation, or they had family, you know, just, I was amazed how, you know, it was, it, cemeteries seemed kind of freaky and weird, not something you talk to everybody about. But once I started talking to people, everyone had a connection to something. So I, I enjoyed putting that book together so much. I think there are 29 essays. And it, people like Lydia Lunch gave me photographs for the book. So um, it's for not knowing what I was doing, it turned out really, really well. And it got me started thinking, you know, what, what do I want in the mail? I, I'd really like to get weird stories from strangers. And that was how Marby Curiosity came about. Right. And I mean, this is... For all intents and purposes, pre-internet. I mean, they're, they're, you know, the oh the, yeah, the very uh, beginnings of it, maybe. But you know, they, we were communicating by mail at this point. Yeah, yeah. I, it amazes me now when I think about it. When an issue of the magazine came out, I sent everyone a postcard through the mail, and then they mailed me a check, and then I mailed them the magazine. <laughs> it was really cumbersome, but yeah, I remember that. I got interested in cemeteries originally because we ended up in Highgate kind of by accident. Uh, Highgate is a Victorian cemetery in London that was abandoned uh, pretty much after World War II, but by the 60s it had been looted by its caretakers and you know it's on the edge of Hampstead Heath so the trees had moved in and were taking it over. It was really falling apart. And in the early 80s, a group of friends bought it and took it over and, you know, did kind of minimal maintenance for years and years. They still run it all this time later. But Mason and I ended up in London by accident. And I found this book of photographs in one of the train station bookstores. And and they were just gorgeous. They were these beautiful black and white pictures. 
and we got to talking. You know, we didn't we didn't intend to be in London. We didn't have a guidebook. We didn't have any kind of plans. And Mason said, you know, he'd rather go see the cemetery than to go see the Tower of London. So that's what we did the last day of our trip. We hauled up there. It's on a hill overlooking kind of London, the river plain anyways. And um, back in the Victorian era, it was the edge of town. Now, you know, the city of London's kind of grown out around it. But it's um, up on this bluff. And we schlepped all the way up the hill to the top of the, the hill to the cemetery in January. It was cold as could be. And uh, the little guy who opened the gate and let us in said we were the only people in the cemetery that day and turned us loose. And the place was just full of angels everywhere you looked. Three-dimensional, you know, carved onto headstones, there'd be faces poking out of the ivy because the, the greens had grown up around it. And it was amazing. I'd never seen anything like that and kind of fell in love. And, uh, oh, it was full of feral cats and <laughs> all kinds of stuff. And, you know, now as I've researched, there may or may not have been a vampire in Highgate. I was going to say, I thought there was either either a vampire story or, or a spring Jack associated with it. So. Yeah. Yeah, um, in the early, early mid-70s, some of the Christopher Lee Dracula movies were filmed in Highgate. And there's some debate about whether Highgate is actually the cemetery uh, Stoker meant when he was writing Dracula. But oh, be wow. that as it may, yeah. So, you know, this guy in a black cape swanning around in the graves. And so stories grew up from that and then there there were two guys who were poking around in the cemetery one of them considered himself a witch one of them considered himself a vampire hunter and the stories changed over time so you know who knows if they were bragging and making things up in the beginning or if they've you know toned it down as people's attitudes have changed but Graves were broken into, bodies were dragged out into paths, things were set on fire, all kinds of damage was done before the friends took it over. So uh, that's another one of those cases where I'm fascinated by how the story has mutated over time. You know, back in the hippie days, who knows what kind of chemicals were in their bloodstream and what they actually saw or didn't see, but... As time's gone, some of the story they've doubled down on and some of the story they've denied that they ever said that they'd done some of those things. So, um, yeah, the Highgate vampire just definitely adds to the mystique of the place. And it's still spectacular. We went back two years ago now, I guess, over the summer. And uh, (laughs) got there. It was a weeknight. And we'd arranged for an evening tour. Uh, One side of the cemetery is open and you can just go in. And the other side is only open to tours or if you know somebody who's buried there. So we were on a tour that night and there was a thunderstorm coming in across London. So the clouds were this really odd kind of orangey gold color as the sun was setting and the storm was coming in. And there were, you know, 
flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder and all of that. And I'm standing there with my umbrella on the highest place in London thinking, you know, this is probably how I buy it. Here I am standing in a graveyard hit by lightning. But uh, the storm kind of blew through. It rained a little bit, but it, it didn't slow us down. And it's just the most amazing place. I mean, every shade of green and still angels everywhere. And uh, trying to think who's buried on that side. Charles Dickens' family is buried there. He intended to be buried there and instead got picked up and taken to Westminster Abbey. Just strange people, menagerists and balloonists and um, a guy who also may or may not have been a vampire. Up on the hill, there's a mausoleum where the man was, I believe he was a German Jew, came to London, bought a newspaper, but people wouldn't accept him in society and, because he was Jewish. And um, he bought up the spot where people used to like to come and sit and picnic in Highgate because it had the best view of the city and put this big mausoleum on it. And uh, his daughter died young. There's a, a figure inside that, uh, the face on the figure is the from taken from the girl's death mask. I think she died of consumption. And the wife died, and then he died of, I don't know if it was, it wasn't consumption, it was a heart attack, something like that. But so anyway, some discussion about, you know, since she went first, maybe she was a vampire. Uh, but it's a beautiful place, just amazing. And then over on the other side of the, uh, cemetery, Douglas Adams is buried, and Malcolm McLaren, and uh, there's a huge monument to Karl Marx. So, one of my favorite places in the world. Wow. You had done, it was quite literally a cemetery tour you were doing at some point, wasn't it? We had a tiny little house, it was the first house we bought, in a, in a little town called Glenrock, which I love the town, I, I wasn't super fond of that house, but I love that little town. I wish I could pick our, our house. We live in a much bigger old like Victorian farmhouse now. I wish I could pick this house up and move it to Glen, <laughs> to Glen Rock. I'd be, I'd be very happy because I like the town of Glen Rock a lot. But we had a horrible futon. I think back now and I think, how did, we, how did you guys sleep on that? <laughs> how did we sleep on that? It was awful. But, but you came and stayed for a few days. And I, I know we went to Gettysburg. Is that the only cemetery we visited? We might have visited a couple local ones. No, we ones. went to a bunch. Um I want to say Zengler's Church. Oh, Zengler's Church. Yeah, yeah. 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 We, we did an episode in that because there's a, a fellow who was a, kind of a, a headless ghost guy. That, oh, uh, really? Turned up, yeah, what, uh, that was buried there. He, they still see him riding his horse around, sort of headless. I mean, they say he, he never lost his head. He pulled his coat up around his ears. But when people <laughs> when people see the ghost, it it looks headless, supposedly. And that's that fellow. Yeah, yeah, that's one of my favorite local ones. They've modified that. They've kind of modernized it a little bit. Sadly, they they had the old oh, it was the old sanctuary of the church or something that you could still see the stonework there. And they've I think they've gotten rid of all that, and it's uh, it's just the old stones now. They didn't touch any of the old stones, the, the old tombstones, but uh, they kind of reshaped the front of the cemetery a little bit. I liked it the way it was, where you could see parts of the old church. Yeah, and we I know we went to Gettysburg, and I'm trying to think. We probably showed you a few of our other favorites around. 
Well, and you told me the best story about Gettysburg, which was the um, about them being able to smell the bodies in York after the battle. Yeah, which yeah. still makes my blood run cold. Oh, I, I mean, it's just when you think about it. Well, it was a hot July day, and yeah. uh, you know, I think more Americans died in that battle than than any other single battle ever in any war, and they didn't have a good body disposal system so they sat out in the hot weather for weeks really until they got them all buried well i was reading about that the the, you know gettysburg was a tiny little town and so the gravedigger had enlisted and so he was gone and his wife was kind of left behind to you know keep an eye on the graveyard but she was pregnant she was like massively pregnant and so you know she dug as many graves as she could but it wasn't quite going Wow, yeah, I know. I know they ended up hiring people to come in, and then uh, I did a stint as a banjo player on a historic steam train here that would uh, drive from a little town called New Freedom up past Glen Rock and to a train station called Glatfelder Station, where they think Lincoln stopped there. I think on his way to give the, the Gettysburg Address, and uh, I, I would dress in period costume and you know play banjo on this train. There was a story on that where they said that there was there was a so you don't think you, you the humans you know you, you think about but the, a lot of horses died as well yeah and uh, there was a tannery along that route and they said that those guys went and, and had to bring the horses back from Gettysburg you know oh, and, 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 yeah brought them all the way over there so mm. it was uh and that's a good whew, I don't know twenty miles away fifteen miles away mm. anyway. So they're they're hauling you know horses back. I'm sure they didn't they weren't responsible for all of them, but you know they said they were going over and and hauling a bunch back. It's oof, just just a brutal brutal thing. Yeah. If you ever come back to the East Coast again, there is a cemetery in Delta, Pennsylvania, and it is where the they had slate mines. There there really two places of good quality slate in the world and one's in Wales and and the other's right here in Delta, Pennsylvania. And the people that knew how to mine slate were the Welsh. So when they discovered, you know, they had these, this great slate here, someone brought a bunch of Welsh people over, you know, they just went over, said, you know, come to America, we have slate mines and basically established this Welsh community here for the purpose of mining slate. There are still uh, Welsh speakers in Delta. They still give church services in Welsh. Oh, that's cool. There. But the tombstones are carved slate. They're black. They're like ebony, black. And they are in perfect condition. These are from, you know, the 1800s, early 1900s. So they're not, you know, ancient. But they're so intricate. They're some of the most intricate carvings I've ever seen. You could get a lot more intricate with slate than you could with you know granite or, or any other kind of stone and they took such pride in their work they had a saying that said the i forget the exact saying but it's something along the lines of the stone doesn't sing in english meaning you know only welsh knew how to really work and carve, <laughs> carve that's lovely yeah yeah and these stones are so beautiful i mean they're just so intricate the I was at the historical society down there doing research for something else, and and there's a really really nice lady who works there, and she says, "Have you seen the Welsh tombstones?" I said, "No, where are they?" And she says, "Well, they're they're over in Slateville, and it sounds she made it sound like it was you know ten miles away it, or or more. It was about a mile, maybe maybe two miles <laughs> away from the historical society." 
so I went you know that day I think I went and looked at them and at some point I'm going to get a good camera and just document all of these uh, thankfully my best friend uh, speaks and reads Welsh so he can actually translate the epitaphs and so forth for me but I they, they all need to be documented they're the most beautiful tombstones that I've seen like really in Pennsylvania I, I mean just really really intricate carvings floral designs and just incredible so if you ever come again we will go there because it's it's quite something to see it sounds amazing yeah the, again the slate just lasts really well i don't i don't know what it is you know the it we have a slate roof on our house and the uh when we moved in we you know we we did a lot of work and the place you know, is a real old place and we're doing a lot of drywall work and so forth. And we had a guy come and check the slate roof. And th- this guy was super obsessive about slate. He told me more about slate than I'd ever want to know. And, <laughs> and, and he said, uh, that slate, will, that roof will last forever. He said, that's that's good Delta slate. You don't have to worry about that. And uh, I, I guess it's the same with these tombstones. They look brand new. They look like that's, they were carved yesterday. That is really cool. Yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty amazing. So your, what was your next cemetery books? We'll we'll kind of skip around. We'll talk about. <laughs> we'll give a list of all your books at the end. But okay. uh, since we're talking about cemeteries, we'll go to your next cemetery book. Well, the the first one that was all mine was called "Wish You Were Here: Adventures in Cemetery Travel," and it's kind of a a memoir of my life discovering cemeteries. You know, I assumed that you put somebody in the ground and the cemetery was there forever and it didn't change. And, you know, people were respectful toward it and Highgate was a good place to start that. No, (laughs) that's not the case at all. Um, You know, cemeteries are only valued as long as people have a connection to them. And if the families move away or die out, they're not there to take care of the graves. All it takes is a, a windstorm to bring a tree down or, you know, ice or an earthquake or forest fire or something like that. Or, you know, high school kid with a baseball bat and irreparable damage is done. And it's so expensive to repair things that they just aren't ever repaired. So once something, once a gravestone or a mausoleum or whatever is broken, it's cheaper to take it down. And then it vanishes from the record. So Wish You Were Here is kind of my adventures traveling. She's everywhere. Our story about Gettysburg is in that book. And uh, Mesa and I did a trip at one point where I had been writing a column, geez, for four years or something like that for Gothicnet about cemeteries as travel destinations. But there were a lot of places that I felt like I hadn't seen and they were historically important and I had to. So we flew into Boston, rented a car, drove up to Rhode Island, and then through New York, and we went up to Sleepy Hollow, came over to Pennsylvania and saw Gettysburg and Laurel Hill and Philadelphia, and uh, ended up back in in, uh, Boston. But it was was amazing. It was 17 graveyards in 11 days. And, you know, that wasn't even every graveyard we passed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we just got kind of snobbish toward the end. Well, that one looks like it's 20th century. We're not going to bother to go in there. But, um, the the little cemetery in Glenrock was really charming. You know, it was like high up on this hill, 
was another time that we were there and there was a thunderstorm coming in and I was thinking, hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that but, was, I, I, you know, I'd, I'd put that out of my head. We, that yeah. was, a, that's a wonderful little cemetery. Yeah. And it's, it's the highest point in town. Well, it had this great grave. I don't know if the guy was like chief of police or what, but his badges were inset in the tombstone and I'd never seen that anywhere else. And there were all these stones that, um, they were granite, but they'd been colorized. And so, you know, there'd be grapes and the grapes on the, on the gravestone would be purple and, uh, you know, just beautiful. So you have to get over my snobby attitude. There's beauty pretty much everywhere you go. You just have to look for it. But um, yeah, it's been a big adventure because, you know, I stumbled into Highgate by accident and at this point now, I go someplace and I'm like, well, I wonder if they have a graveyard. Uh, <laughs> Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My mom took me up to um, Niagara Falls a couple of years ago, and uh, we were having lunch in some tourist restaurant and started asking the waitress, you know, is there a, a graveyard here in town that's historic? And she didn't know, but she'd go ask in the kitchen. And so, yeah, when a cook came out, and he's like, oh, you know, if you go up the hill, there's a, a graveyard that was a Battle of 1812 uh, battle site, battleground. And uh, it happened to be on the way back to our hotel. So my parents dropped me off and they went back to the hotel with my daughter and everybody got in the pool and I poked around the graveyard. <laughs> but, you know, it was this really charming little place. And in the heart of it was a, a monument to the soldiers who were killed right there. The, the church that stands on that ground was there in 1812. And because it was the high ground, that's where the Americans attacked. And the Americans don't actually admit that they lost that battle, but they withdrew from the field and eventually withdrew from Canada. But it's kind of the farthest north that America got during the World War of 1812. And uh, there are ghost stories about some of those soldiers still roaming around trying to, you know, gather up all their bits and I didn't have anything spooky happen to me because it was <laughs> in the middle of a summer afternoon. But um, also in that graveyard, there were monuments to a couple of people who'd gone over the falls intentionally or not. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. And one of them was a daredevil who'd been over the falls a couple of times. And, you know, it was just, I would have never found that place. But I had the best afternoon poking around in there. And then I got home and was looking at all the 
you know, YouTube videos and EVPs and ghost hunter stuff. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't see any of that during the day. So have you had any, you know, truly spooky experiences? Yeah, there's a cemetery in Chicago called Rose Hill that it was very strange. The, The people in the office weren't welcoming, which is not my experience for the most part everywhere I've gone. You know, if you go in the office and ask some questions, they're really glad to have you come and talk about their graveyard. So this one was not welcoming, and um, we poked around. It was, I want to say April or something like that. The trees hadn't leafed out yet, and it was it was nice in the sun, but every now and then the cold breeze would blow through. And so there's a chapel toward the back that I had heard was haunted, and we found it. It's only open, I think, twice a year or something like that. It's only open on tours, and so it was locked up while we were there. But we were walking around and looking, you know, as through the windows as well as we could, and there were staircases from ground level down to what would be the crypt of the, this chapel. And as I walked up to one, this cardinal came flapping up up out of this staircase just about hit me in the face and then went off and I I couldn't see it 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 happened so fast and it was so close to me it was just this brilliant flash of you know blood red flying up at me and Mason said oh yeah it was a a bird but um, what it was doing down the staircase I don't know and you know as we walked around this area there was kind of a hill behind the chapel and it was the mound over the old public mausoleum, which is closed now. But all of us started to get kind of nauseous and feel really short of breath and weird. And so we backed off from that. But while we were poking around in that cemetery, we kept hearing sirens kind coming from every direction and we couldn't figure out, you know, had we tripped a wire, what was going on? Apparently, one of the buildings near the cemetery had had an explosion and a fire. And as we were wandering around listening to all these sirens, we started to smell meat cooking. And it smelled really, really good. And, you know, I still don't know if anyone was killed in the fire or not, if that was what we were smelling. But the whole thing was creepy from walking in the gate till when we left is that an older cemetery? Yeah, it's it's um, Chicago, like a lot of cities in America, used to have a pioneer graveyard downtown, and that was eventually taken up. The bodies were moved, and they, you know, out to the fringes of town, which is where Rose Hill is now. It's sort of more or less on the side near O'Hare. You know, at one point in the 19th century was the edge of town and now it's in the middle of town again but it's really pretty cemetery you know it's mostly flat there there's just this one hill where the mausoleum was but it's very strange place i'd like to go back another time and see if it was just that it was spring and everything was so skeletal all the trees were so skeletal then or if there really is something to it Oh, and I should tell you about Mountain View Cemetery, which is in Oakland, California, across the bay from San Francisco. 
I had a friend who organized a night tour once. It was the first, I think the first cemetery I was in at night. And uh, it was just a small group of us. There was one of the guys who's written a book about it was the tour guide and a psychic, uh, stage magician, my friend who was a bookseller, me, trying to think. I think there were seven of us. It was a small group anyway. And um, we got there as the sun was setting and we're poking around. I kept seeing like flashes of light out of the corner of my eye, like streaks of light. And there are streets that surround the cemetery. So I was thinking, well, you know, it could be headlights. I, I didn't see cars. I couldn't hear them. But it could be, you know, some things reflecting off polished faces of gravestones or whatever. Um, so he took us down into the front of the cemetery and to the old potter's field. And I walked around a little bit, and I got this sharp cold pain in the back of my neck and I thought I wonder what that is and so I'm looking in the grass to see if there's anything there and I found a headstone and he came over and he said oh I didn't realize there were any headstones you know this is the the potter's field and the psychic said yeah this is she was a a maid and had gotten pregnant by the Uh, a young man of the house and fell or was pushed down the stairs, broke her neck and and is buried there now. And, you know, I'm like, no, (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to know this. So I I backed off and my my friend, the bookseller kind of followed me and she said, I didn't know you were psychic. I'm like, I don't think I am psychic, but that's freaking me out. I don't know. And uh, as we walked around every now and then, you would smell something really strongly. And I think, you know, maybe there's somebody living in one of these mausoleums or maybe there's something else going on here. But as we walked farther into the cemetery, the tour guide was really excited. He really wanted to show us something, something that we were really going to be impressed by. And the farther in we went, it turned out he was taking us to the Black Dahlia's grave. And after this experience with the, you know, the servant girl who'd broken her neck, I was like, no, I am not going out to see the Black Dahlia's tombstone. Absolutely not. So uh, finally, everybody found it. And they're like, come on, don't stand there by yourself. Come up and see it. So I did. And it's it's really just a simple stone. It's a little, you know, inset in the ground, granite stone with her name. And it says, I don't know daughter or something like that you know nothing that calls her out as as being a murder victim and i got this chant in my head think just on a loop over and over what a beautiful girl she was such a beautiful girl just over and over in my head and i'm like that's it i'm out of here wow. <laughs> so i've been back to her grave a couple of times it's really hard to find for some reason i don't know if you know, it doesn't want to be found necessarily or what, but I guess she had a sister who lived in Oakland, and so that's why she's buried in Oakland. Strange Familiars is brought to you by our patrons. If you'd like to help us make the show 
and get extra content, please consider becoming a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. $3 a month gets extra shows. Like I said, in February, we did three shows for our patrons, three full shows. I think that will continue. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it when we can, but we've been doing two shows a month. We, we promise at least one full patron show a month. We usually deliver more than that. Lately, we've been delivering two. This month, we did three. So get a lot of extra content, different levels of support there. If you want to go more than $3, you can get things like pins, stickers, T-shirts, signed copies of my book, audio CDs, and more. You can go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars and check out all the different levels there. We're about to add some new tiers for people. They requested different mm-hmm. tiers, so we're about to add some some extra tiers there as well. If you don't like the idea of a subscription or a monthly payment, you can do a one-time donation. If you go to strangefamiliars.com and look in the show notes, you can see a paypal.me link, and you can make a one-time donation. That helps a lot as well. And, of course, leaving reviews for us, five-star reviews on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen, that helps as well. Hey, can I plug my business? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I've recently had a change of jobs from (laughs) having one to not having one. (laughs) Yes. So I have to kind of bump up the other things I do. So I thought I would take this moment to plug some of the antique photography available to you via the fine people at Strange Familiars. (laughs) (laughs) We have links to the eBay store and your... My Etsy store. Your Etsy as well. I I sell both in both places. On eBay, it's under Strange Familiars. Uh-huh. On Etsy, it's under Odd Peacock. Yeah, with one D. O-D Peacock. Mm-hmm. Which does not stand for Old Dirty Peacock. <laughs> <laughs> we have all kinds of stuff from post-mortem photographs to... We do. We have all kinds of weird stuff. And you can feel free to contact me. I mean, if there's something you're looking for. I don't have every single one of the photos that I own available online at any given time, but... Yeah, I have tons of animals. If you collect animals, I have. Um, there, we have circus people. Circus people. We have musicians, old banjo players. We've got creepy Sp- clowns. Mm-hmm. We've got all kinds of stuff. Specific ethnicities, like so. If you want to collect people that, you know, resemble your family, <laughs> I can also do family trees for people. If you're looking for just a basic family tree, you can contact me and I can give you some prices based on how much time it might take to develop that. Genealogy work. <laughs> you can contact Allison through the Strange Familiars website. I will forward any emails to her. Just put Allison in the subject or something. And now we'll get back to our interview with Lauren. Talk some more cemeteries. The Victorian cemetery movement, where they just decided we're, we're going to make beautiful cemeteries. Yeah. They poured their hearts into it. And these cemeteries are just gorgeous. Yeah. It's kind of heaven on earth, you know, if yeah. you think of heaven as a garden. People today, they think, you know, for instance, I'm sure there's, you know, there's people who think, oh, you went on a, a cemetery tour, you know, a, a vacation where you went to only to cemeteries. It's very morbid. But it was a very common thing. I mean, they would picnic 
every Sunday they they go to church and then they go have picnics in these cemeteries because they were beautiful places. Well, and some of them predate parks. You know, uh, Mount Auburn, which is the first garden cemetery in the U.S., is out on the edge of Boston. Nobody had seen anything like that before. You know, there weren't city parks. They, the green didn't exist yet. Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn was so popular with people coming out on, you know, these weekend trips. More people came to see Greenwood Cemetery in a year than would go to Niagara Falls. Wow. Because Central Park didn't exist yet. And the city fathers in Manhattan were like, well, you know, all these people are paying all this money to take the streetcar out there and buy their picnics and go sit in the cemetery. How can we get in on this? <laughs> well, <laughs> let's build a park. And then people will come here instead of going to the cemetery. So then the same with Golden Gate Park. The cemeteries here predated the park. So, yeah, you know, where else were you going to go if you wanted to court or get some sunshine or whatever? Yeah. You mentioned so many cemeteries have been you know, just lost or, or they've been moved. There's a whole section in Prospect Hill, which is our, our local kind of Victorian era cemetery where much older graves, there's a section where there's very neat lined up and they're, they're very old stones, you know, from the 1700s. And you're like, wow, they were very neat. And well, they were very neat because they just transferred the bodies there. And then they, they lined right. up these stones in, in a very neat fashion. If they didn't have you know to plan it out the way they did the other sections of the cemetery, you know, those are the lucky ones. There are a lot of a lot of people. A lot of these cemeteries just get totally lost, and I think the Potter's Fields probably more than any. Yeah, uh, because w- we did an episode where we talked about one of Barnum's cannibals died and was buried here in York, and he was he was buried in a Potter's Field, and there's no record of where he was buried. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just a you know big Potter's Field there. There's a one monument to, I think it's to a little girl who she died as a result of abuse. And, and this was way more recent than you. I mean, you think of people being put in potter's fields, you know, poor Victorians in the in the 1800s are being put in potter's fields. Well, this was very, very recent. I want to say maybe as recent as the 80s or so. Yeah. This, yeah. this uh, young girl who was, like I said, I think she died as a, you know, as a result of some sort of abuse or, or some sort of mistreatment the town got together and had a stone put there for her. But this, you know, performer from Barnum, there's no record of all, uh, uh, you know, where he is in there. We know he's in there. Uh, Actually, we we don't, (laughs) we know he was in there at some point that they dug him up at some point and, uh, and uh, his body was missing. So Mm. he was a little person. And there are rumors of a local doctor who had a a skeleton of a little person in his office. And we think, Mm -hmm. we think it was, he was quite possibly a victim of you know grave robbing, which was very common back in the day. Yeah, or yeah. or that Barnum just just sold his body and they buried no nobody in the coffin anyway, which uh, would not have been above Barnum at yeah. all. It's, it's uh, any way to make a buck. In any case, when we were looking for this Potter's Field, we came across you know records of two or three other Potter's Fields around York, and one of them is kind of possibly. On the backside of a park, you know, there's a baseball diamond. It's a tiny little park. It's possibly there if we found it or there's a little overpass there. It might be, it might have been, you know, just built under this overpass. It might be, might have been paved over, literally. The other one is completely gone. 
the third one is there's just no record of these things. It's, it's terrible. It's really tragic. I, you know, on one hand, these people can't afford monuments anyway, but to have these potter's fields just they just get paved over or built built on top of, and it's it's uh, they're just gone. Yeah, San Francisco is terrible about that. The city passed a rule in 1900 that nobody could be buried inside city limits. So there were all these cemeteries at that point, but they couldn't make any money by burying new people. You know, those are the days before now we have perpetual endowments Mm -hmm. where, you know, when you buy a grave, some of that cost goes into a fund to keep up that grave forever. Right. But in those days, you know, you paid your money, you bought your little plot of land and it was up to you to take care of it. And if the family was gone or if the person had no family, then they wasn't cared for. So things deteriorated. You know, some of the damage was done in 1906 and stones were knocked over and never reset and city hall burned. So all the city cemetery records burned with it. So they didn't have any idea how many people were buried or where they were buried. So there's a, a park on the edge of it's the highlands up above uh, the mouth of the bay that used to be all of the little cemeteries in the city, the Greek Orthodox, some of the Jewish congregations, the Russian Orthodox, uh, black Masons, just all kinds of people had their little patch of ground. And when the city decided it was going to close that cemetery they paid people to pick up the headstones and move the bodies. Well, they picked up the headstones. So they built a, a big, they call it the Palace of Legion of Honor Museum. That's the medieval and early collections in San Francisco. It's a beautiful museum. But they just built it on top of the graveyard. And after we had the earthquake in 89. They decided to do some retrofitting and, and anchor it down to the bedrock. So as they dug down, they found all these bodies that were still under the cemetery. Huh. And when the museum had been built, people knew they were there. You know, they'd run piping through them. They'd run cables through them. You know, the bones were right there, and they just did whatever they needed to do. They just left everybody in place. So in this little courtyard area that they excavated there were like 200 bodies so you know extrapolate that out this is a really big park it's most of it's a golf course now but there are a couple of the big monuments still in place there's one to um Siemens Union and there's a uh, the ruins of what was the Chinese mortuary temple so you know back in the rough there are still bits of headstone and apparently when it rains, sometimes the bones work their way out of the sod because people weren't buried all that deeply. And it just amazes me that this is here, you know, that the guys that did the work got away with it. You know, they moved the stones, they pay, They were paid for them. And uh, the breakwater out at Ocean Beach is built on headstones. Then there are times of the year where, you know, the when a storm comes in, it pulls the sand off the beach and you can walk around out there and kind of feel the stones shifting under your feet. Hmm. It's a really queasy kind of sensation. And um, every now and then the sand will uncover one and, and 
people in San Francisco are so transient that, you know, they're always amazed. Oh, my God, there's a headstone here. How did this wash up? No, it's been there. It's, they just, you know, the sand's gotten washed away. And one of the parks on, it's on Haight Street up above, it's on a hill up above Haight Street, I should say. The gutters are all lined with headstones. And when they clear them out a couple of times a year, you can walk around and read the epitaphs. Oh, you know, wow. The stones were supposed to be placed face down, so you can't read the epitaphs, but not all of them are. And so, you know, this was from one of the graveyards. When they demolished it, they just, they, you know, they had this nice marble stone. They might as well reuse it. So, yeah, it's just, it strikes me as really strange that the people in the past were like, yeah, whatever, dig them up, let's move them, you know, <laughs> build houses there. I don't know. Did you see the story a couple of years ago about the little girl whose body they found? Uh, wh- where was this? Here in San Francisco. I'm not sure that I did. Yeah. Somebody was doing a little gardening in their backyard and dug down not very deep and found this iron coffin. And it was um, it had a window, a viewing window in it. And it was sealed so well that the little girl was still completely visible inside. Oh, wow. Yeah. And... Uh, there was, you know, it was like a hot potato. The the woman called the city and said, I just found a coffin in my backyard. And the city said, what do you want us to do about it? <laughs> you know, she's been dead a long time. She's, you know, we don't need to get the coroner out here to investigate or anything like that. So it it took a while to find the right person to to finally say, okay, you know, we'll buy her a grave. South of town, there's a little little town that has 17 graveyards it was set up as the town where people from san francisco could be buried so there are more dead people in colma than there are living people like you know by a factor of 10 there's over a million dead people and a thousand living people in this town so they got a grave site for this little girl and reburied her and somebody got on the case and did a bunch of genealogical research and was able to put a name to her and finally she's been identified and she has a stone with her name on it but oh wow you know there's there's just pretty much in san francisco every time they build some sort of civic thing they find bodies because even though san francisco is a relatively young city compared to you know cities on the east coast or cities in europe the records were all destroyed so who knows where there are bodies yeah, and I mean, before there were these huge Victorian cemeteries, it wasn't unusual for people to have family plots. You know, yeah. out, out back, there are still several around here. You can you can drive and drive past a farm and see a little family plot there where people were buried. Well, it made sense, you know. It was a long way to go to town. Why would you want to have your dead that far away and put them on the put them on the property where you could visit them and take care of their graves? Sure. Yeah. When they redid the the old public library a couple of years ago, they re, redid it as the Asian Art Museum. And it's on old cemetery land, too. The whole Civic Center area here in San Francisco used to be a cemetery just post-Gold Rush. I, I think it was finally demolished in the 1870s. So, you know, not that old in the scope of things, but it was sand dunes. So they kind of combed through it a little bit, but they didn't dig down too deep. And when they were redoing this museum, 
they found all these bodies and you know asian culture is sensitive to having dead people around right so some of them they could identify as you know it has a crucifix it must have been catholic it should go to the catholic cemetery but some of them seem to be native american and the the deal with the tribes out here is they want their bodies left where they're found they don't want them moved they don't want them messed with you know put them back where you got them so they had to work out a thing you know get all the cultures together and make sure everybody's respecting everybody else's beliefs but the the chinese culture needed to have an exorcist to come out and do do a couple of spells and make sure everything was cool you know all the ghosts were happy and then they open the museum and it's been fine but you know that was fascinating to me because you know i assume the respectful thing is to to take those bodies and put them someplace in a dedicated space but no you know some cultures would much rather have them just not messed with leave them where they are wow yeah i know in baltimore and philadelphia there's been cases where there's been flooding and bodies have been visible uh, Mm -hmm. in recent years i mean that can't be helped but you know it, it is this this thing where it's i mean you know, we've only been here however many, a few hundred years, but we've, that's a lot of dead people. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, they stack up. Yeah, exactly. Whereas uh, some of the research we've done on a, a very wealthy family of photographers, well, they were, they were one time very wealthy and they bought a large plot and, you know, we found their plot with ease in the cemetery in York and we just could not find you know, the, the last couple brothers in this family who died, we, and we couldn't find them anywhere. We ended up going to the office and, you know, asking, like, can you help? You know, where are these, they're supposed to be in here somewhere. Where are these guys? And what it was is the family ran out of money. They ran out of money. So they're buried there in the family plot, but their names... But their graves aren't marked. Yeah, their names just aren't yeah. carved with, with the other names. They just ran out of money to hire someone to, to enter their names on the stones as well. You know, there's many, many reasons that people go missing... How many graveyard books have you written? <laughs> uh, I've edited the one and I've written two. Written and two. The, yeah, the most recent one is 199 Cemeteries to See Before You Die, which is kind of a guidebook to cemeteries that everybody should see. Have you seen all 199 of them? No, I've seen about 70, I think, now. I, I got to cross another one off this summer, so... <laughs> um, the rest are kind of an aspirational list because I sure. wanted to make it as global as possible. So it includes things in Eastern Europe that I haven't been to or I haven't been to the Middle East yet. It's on my list. Or uh, Hong Kong and China. It's a lot of places I need to go. But um, I wanted to make it uh, you know, as inclusive as I could. Sure. So there are 100 in the U.S. and... The rest of the the rest of the world. So you know, you think 199. Wow, that seems like a lot, but I had to leave so much out. <laughs> oh, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. The, so, what's uh, are they numbered in any particular order? Or is it just? No, it's arranged geographically. Because I thought about doing them as in importance, but you know, if you were traveling or whatever, it'd make it really hard to use the book. So they're grouped by in the U.S. the Eastern Seaboard and the South and the Midwest and 
Western graveyards, California and the the Northwest coast. I'm pretty pleased with how it turned out. I, I, the book is really pretty, and the publisher did a really nice job putting it together. But I, I'd like to come back and do a second volume because I just left things out. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that back. always the case? I mean, I've yet to write fiction, so I don't know with fiction. But I know with nonfiction, every time without fail, I finish a book, publish it, if not before it's actually you know in my hands, shortly afterward, I'll find new information and just slap myself. Oh, this should have gone in there. This yeah. should have gone in there. It's- well, deadlines have a purpose. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely a case of, boy, I could have researched this for the rest of my life. And it could have been, you know, a thousand cemeteries and a big omnibus or something like that. But, you know, nobody would be able to buy it because it'd be huge, brick-like. Right. right. Uh, you know, I only had one cemetery in Russia, which is a crime. But Europe, I had to do a lot in Europe. Yeah. Italy and France have this rich cemetery history that really had to be delved into. So, I'm going to guess in the way that you talked about it in such glowing terms that Highgate is your favorite? Oh, yeah, it's kind of like picking my favorite child. Yeah, yeah, I understand. <laughs> but yeah, Highgate is is really special to me just because it was the first and because its history is so interesting, you know, between the, the vampire hunters and the famous people and everything else. But I grew up in outside of Flint, Michigan, and there's a cemetery in Flint that has just this amazing sculpture collection. You know, it's Flint used to have a lot of money back in the day. You know, it was uh, GM was headquartered there. And so all the General Motors money was there. The shops were there. And, you know, the shops ran when I was a kid. They were running three shifts a day. And so people were getting, you know, good money. And as I grew up into high school and all of that, the shops were closing and moving to Mexico or wherever and GM was pulling out of Flint and it was kind of the start of a long, slow slide so that now, you know, if living in the city of Flint, you can't drink the water, it's still toxic. But there's pockets of, you know, kind of symbols of what the city used to be. And this, the cemetery is amazing. It's got this crack the whip sculpture where it's, I think it's seven kids holding hands, running in a circle and, uh, it's really detailed. Each kid is individual. The last one in line is a little Asian girl who's lost her Birkenstock and it's like elsewhere in the grass. Oh, wow. And so one of her feet is bare as she's running. And, you know, it's just amazing. And every now and then a story will pop up online about how that area is haunted. And I've never had any experience there. I haven't been there at night and I don't know, 30 years or more, but during the day, it's really peaceful. And, you know, it's just this place along the road. If you weren't from Michigan, you'd probably never know about it, but that's on my list, too, of my favorites. I really <laughs> love that. Would I be putting you on the spot if I just say, let's pick a cemetery from each region, like, say, New England, and you just choose one that people should go see? I could do that, I think. All right, so... Well, let's pick one from each region, at least in the United States, and you can recommend one that people check out. 
So we'll start in the Northeast. We go with New England. Ooh, okay. Uh, well, if you're only going to see one, you should see Mount Auburn outside of Boston. It's it's in Cambridge, and it is really spectacular. It was the first garden cemetery in the U.S. and still just breathtaking. It's built on hills, and there are lakes and all these trees. The the people who founded it were the Horticultural Society of Massachusetts. And so it was designed from the start to be a garden, just spectacularly beautiful. So yeah, that that would be my choice. There are a lot to choose from in New England. But... We'll head south and go to the Mid-Atlantic. Bonaventure in Savannah. It's full of the old plantation oaks with the Spanish moss hanging on them and sculpture and rhododendrons and just, and again, really spectacularly beautiful. So let's go and we'll do, and we're just doing general regions. So let's just do general, say the, the South, you know, anywhere from Florida over to Texas. Uh, well, one of the ones I'd like to see is the Huguenot Cemetery in St. Augustine. Uh, mm-hmm. They had a, it's it's fragile and it's really old. It dates to the American, I don't want to say occupation, the American taking over of Florida. So it's it doesn't date back to the Spanish era, but some of the people buried there are still uh, from the Spanish era. So there's a priest whose name I'm totally blanking on who is Irish, but he's buried under a Spanish name because when he was working with the Spanish Catholics, you know, he adopted a Spanish name. But it sounds like an amazing place. And it was damaged last year when the hurricane hit. I, I haven't heard how it got through the hurricanes this year. But some of the trees, you know, there's these huge 200-year-old trees came down and, you know, fell across the fragile old stones. And so it, it was a pretty fragile place to begin with. But now it's even more endangered. And so it's one of those places that when it's open, it's open as a fundraiser. And so I would really like to see that. I think we should support those things. You know, again, let's get down. So if you get the opportunity to to save history like that. Do you know how the cemeteries in New Orleans fared after Katrina? Out along the Pontchartrain Highway, there's a a number of cemeteries and the highway is up on piers so it goes over them those cemeteries were flooded so Metairie and Green Lawn and the Masonic Cemetery the Oddfellow Cemetery all of those were totally underwater and I was there oh five or six years ago you could still see the high water line on some of those monuments mm. yeah so yeah, it was lucky that when the water came in, it didn't move around too much, and it kind of cushioned the stones. But, yeah, that was amazing, the amount of damage that that could do. You know, some of those mausoleums are iron, and if they'd been whitewashed, then they did okay. But some of them, the whitewash had flaked off, and so the iron's rusted, and you know, a lot of damage was done. Wow. Wow. Back to our list, the, the Midwest. In the Midwest. Hmm. I was in... Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland a couple of years ago in the autumn, and it is really spectacular. It's uh, 
Oh, it's built on a hill looking out toward the lake. And uh, Garfield is buried there in uh, just this amazing <laughs> monument. It's like three stories tall. It's got a statue of him inside. Um, he was assassinated. And so he was a native son of Ohio. And there's a spectacular monument to him. Uh, and it also has a chapel that was designed by Lewis Comfort Tiffany. And it was the first place in Cleveland that was electrified because after Tiffany had designed the place and painted the murals and all of that, he didn't want candle smoke you know, defacing his artwork. And so he, he called his friend Edison and said, hey, can you run some electric lights in here? So my my work is protected. Wow. And yeah, it's really beautiful. So, I mean, it's just an amazing place. There's all these, you know, different stories, different monuments. There's a angel on one of the graves that the way the bronze is weathered over the years, it looks like she's weeping. Uh, and, you know, just an amazing place. And uh, I was there in November and the, the leaves were all drifting and, you know, I was kicking around through the leaves. It looked like everything had been gilded. It was so beautiful. All right, so moving onward, we'll go to the Northwest. The Northwest. Um, I'd have to say another Lakeview in Seattle. It's it's up on a hill, and it you can see water, I think, on three sides. Bruce Lee is buried there. And he was, I think at the time, he was the first Chinese-American buried in the cemetery. But he's up toward the crest of the hill, and he has a really beautiful gravestone. And now Brandon is buried there beside him. And they have a view. You know, the feng shui is really good. They have a view of the water and the mountains and all of that. And uh, all kinds of history buried there. The The daughter of the chief for whom Seattle was named is buried there. And pioneers and just everybody who was anybody in Seattle is buried in that cemetery. So I, I was there on a tour and it was, it was fascinating just the stories they could tell. And I, I guess we'd go to the Southwest to round it out. Southwest. That's the area that I haven't really poked around in enough yet. I need a, a, a <laughs> an adventure, but I guess I would say, Manzanar, do we consider Southern California Southwest? Sure, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, Manzanar was a, a concentration camp during World War II where the Japanese were interned. And most of the, like 90% of the Japanese that were imprisoned during World War II were American citizens. They were either naturalized immigrants, they'd gotten their green cards, or they were born in this country. But it didn't matter. After Pearl Harbor was bombed, there was some concern that because they looked different, because they came from a different culture, however many generations back, the Japanese might be spies. So they were rounded up by Order of Franklin Roosevelt, and they were put in these camps. Uh, Manzanar is in the desert. It's like 200 miles outside of L.A. And um, it's just the most brutal place there's no water it's all dusty you know terribly hot in the summer terribly cold in the winter 
But the Japanese managed to build themselves a Japanese garden, and they built, they call it a soul-consoling tower, a monument to mark the graveyard. And um, there are 10 people still buried there all these years later. Most people, when they left, they... Uh, their family members had been cremated and they took the ashes with them. But some of the people buried in the cemetery didn't have family or for whatever reason were left behind. And so most of the camp has been leveled. You you know, you could see outlines of where the buildings stood. You can see where the garden used to be, but the cemetery is still intact and, and survivors of the camps you know, are getting elderly now. They don't make the pilgrimage so much, but uh, their family members make the pilgrimage to the cemetery once a year to to clean up the graveyard and take care of the graves. So I think that's a place that everybody should see. It's It says a lot about our history, especially in these days, that sure. this is not a new thing. It's something that keeps coming up, and we have to keep thinking about how we how we treat other Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to tell everybody that you in no way knew those questions were coming. You did. I didn't give you a, a list of questions. I came out of nowhere with that list and you hit it out of the park. Your uh, knowledge of cemeteries is incredible. Encyclopedic. <laughs> I am super impressed. I mean, it'd be one thing if I'd have told you, okay, I'm going to ask you these questions. There was, you know, I gave you no list of questions and it just came up with that off the cuff. And that was wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you. But you know, if you ask me those questions again tomorrow, I'd probably have different answers. <laughs> and I, I think that's that shows your true love of cemeteries, though. So, can we have a complete list of your books? We, uh... Yeah the the first one is out of print now, but that was Death's Garden: Relationships with Cemeteries, uh, and I'm slowly compiling a second volume of that. So hopefully in the next year or so, I should be, I think, crowdfunding that. This The second book was Wish You Were Here, Adventures in Cemetery Travel. And that's text-based with a couple of pictures. And the new one is 199 Cemeteries to See Before You Die. And that's lots of pictures, full-color hardcover, with a little bit of text on each cemetery. And the, the one I'm working on now, I'm still looking for a publisher, but that's uh, the Pioneer Cemeteries of the San Francisco Bay Area. So hopefully someday soon that'll be out. <laughs> and then you, you have a number of fiction books as well? Yeah, I I wrote a space opera trilogy a couple of years ago because space opera is my other love. <laughs> Cemeteries and space opera. And I've got a series of books first one's out and the second one is almost finished about a succubus who falls in love with an angel. So the angel thing comes in somehow. I am not sure, but uh, yeah. So the first one of those is called lost angels and the second one will be Angelus Rose. The space opera series is no more heroes. Uh, yeah. The third book is no more heroes. No, no the more first heroes. one is the dangerous type and then killed by numbers and then no more heroes. All of these can be seen on your website, which is laurenroads.com. I'll put a link to that. So I'll put a link to your books on Amazon, but people can order them. You know, they're available to order at other bookstores as well, wherever they prefer. Yeah. Thank you, Lauren, for coming on. I Super fun conversation. 
as as fun as it can be talking about death in cemeteries. <laughs> but no, I, well, you I, know, in cemeteries, if nothing else, I've learned, you know, every day above ground is a good day because sure. the alternative is really grim, right? So it's nice to be reminded every now and then to stop and smell the flowers and you know look at the green grass and the blue sky and all of that. Just appreciate being alive. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on, and I'm sure we'll talk to you again in the future. Thank you so much. It was almost more difficult to interview someone I knew for so long. I mean, we talked as, you know, friends for a long time, both before and after the mm-hmm. actual interview, you know, and that was fine. And then when it came to the interview, it, it was almost like... Like an odd formality that you're not used to? I think that was it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that was it. Lauren's been wonderful. And like I said, she got me started really in my writing career by having me write stuff for Morbid Curiosity. Yeah, she's always been very generous in that way and just letting people tell their stories. That's what I really loved about Morbid Curiosity magazine. It was just, you know, everybody's got... A story, whether it's a strange story in this way or whether it's a strange story about someone they knew or it's a strange experience, everybody's got strangeness. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it's just a matter of getting people talking usually. Yep. And they'll, they'll talk to you. It was great to interview her, though. I was happy to have her on the show. So thank you, Lauren. And we will be back next week with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Intro and background music is by... Stonebreath? By Stonebreath. <laughs> you can find more... The house band of Strange Familiars. It is. It is. Whether you like it or not. <laughs> Royalty-free find... since 93. <laughs> <laughs> Royalty-free for us. Yeah, for us. <laughs> Although, there, I, there was another paranormal podcast... That uh-huh. TJ pointed me to that used my music. Did they ask? As the intro and outro. They did not ask. <laughs> and I, they didn't even mention, like, Strange Familiars. They just used m- my song. And they, they did link to my band camp. That's nice. Yes, it's fine. <laughs> if they asked, I would have said yes. So it's uh, fine. Yeah. It's, it's fine that they did that. But I was like, did they do this because they thought... Oh, this is the music you use on paranormal podcasts because they heard it on Strange Familiars and assume that this guy whose music they use on Strange Familiars is just cool with them with being on paranormal podcasts? Or did they make the connection that it was me and Strange Familiars? Yeah, I don't know that I immediately would do that. Yeah, it, it was it was it was an odd thing, but I'm fine. Like I said, I would have told him yes anyway if he asked. So it's it's fine. They put the link to the band camp, but I, I that was surprising to me. I was like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more Stonebreath if you are on Facebook Strange Familiars is on Facebook facebook.com slash Strange Familiars and there's the Strange Familiars gathering group on there as well Thank you.
sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.